Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Shame is everywhere, from advertising to the dinner table and on every last inch of social media. To examine the origin and effect of this reality, I've invited Kathy O'Neill to join us this week. Kathy is an author of the best-selling Weapons of Math Destruction, which won the Euler Book Prize and was longlisted for the National Book Award. She received her PhD in mathematics from Harvard and has worked in finance, tech, and academia. Her new book, The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the Age of Humiliation, is available. I think shame is lethal. I think shame is deadly. Um, And I think we are swimming in it deep. We're in a renaissance of public shaming Mm -hmm. brought about by social media and the internet. Yes. Brought about by this sort of weird approval machine that is social media. Last week I was watching the television... And uh, Bill Maher sat at a, a host desk like this one. He looked into the camera like I'm doing now and he talked on his show about fat shaming. He argued that it had gone away and needed to make a comeback. Plastic surgeons have coined a new syndrome for it. Snapchat dysmorphia with young patients wanting surgery so they can look more like they do in filtered selfies. I'm Kathy O'Neill and I'd like to challenge corporations not to profit from shame. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. And let's just jump right into your book, The Shame Machine. Tell me about why you wrote it. I wrote it as a lingering question from my previous book, which was about algorithms taking advantage of people. I interviewed a bunch of teachers. And they got fired from a score that they didn't understand that no one could explain to them. It was called the value-added model for teachers, but it was just a number. And they kept on getting fired and I kept interviewing them. And I said, did you ask anyone to explain the score? And they'd say, I tried, but they told me it was math and I wouldn't understand it. And my next question was like, what did you say? And they would always be like, I kind of let it drop. And it just really, it stymied me. 
because I was like, what is that? And then I was like, oh, wait, I have a PhD in math. People can't tell me it's math. You wouldn't understand it. Because I would be like, literally, fuck you. If you can't explain it to me, then there's something wrong with you, not with me. And I just, I was like, oh, that's shame. That's math shaming. And it works. And I know it works because it wasn't just one person who told me this. It was like an ongoing answer to that question. And a friend of mine who was a principal whose teachers were getting fired from this would ask her DOE, her Department of Education contact. And they would be like, Matthew wouldn't understand it. She's like, I still want to know. And they'd send her up the line and they'd say, oh, it's Matthew wouldn't understand it. It was just like, it was a systemic answer to a really basic and important question. Like, why are you firing my teachers? And it worked in general. And I was like, what is that power? Because at the end of the day, the power has to be there for terrible algorithms to function as they do. And I put that kind of in my pocket. And then like about a year later, when my book is about to come out, actually, I was doing research on bariatric surgery because my brother had just been diagnosed with diabetes, which my father had at my brother's age. And I'm like two years younger than my brother. And I was like, okay, I have all the risk factors. I'm going to get diabetes unless I do something. And so I was trying to do my research and I was just like inundated with this advertising and the shaming. And it was like, oh my God, I just, every time I tried to sit down to do research, I just, my brain stopped working. It was like really defensive and loud and terrible. And I was like, what is going on with me? Like the third time I tried to do it, I was like, I can't even sit down because I don't want that experience again. And I was like, oh wait, that's shame. That's the same thing. It makes us shut up and it works. And it makes us so desperate to get out of that situation that we would actually spend money or deny ourselves our rights or spend our life savings on a, on a treatment we know won't work. And so those two things, actually, those connections between the teachers and my own experience being shamed, I was like, shame is kind of invisible to me, at least it was at the time. Obviously, I thought I knew what shame was, but I didn't see it. I didn't observe it carefully. And it just crept up on me, but it had this immense power over me and other people. So I wanted to understand that. Personally, I think feeling shame is probably the worst that I've felt in my entire existence. And it is so sticky. The only word I could think of to describe it. It's sticky. Like it won't let go. Like it can't get it off. And I remember years ago, maybe right after I had Milo. So Milo's going to be 11 in August. I still had the baby weight and I went to an event and the comedian, Jay Moore, he fat shamed me to the media and the press. And I was devastated. I was devastated. And I thought, my God, I'm feeling this like in my body and how he got away with getting me to that place, I think could only go back to this underlying pain that I was feeling. So I guess my question is, why does shame exist? And is it related to pain? You just described it very, very beautifully, actually. As much as something that ugly to feel can be beautiful. It is sticky. It is existentially threatening to our sense of self, right? It actually makes us feel unworthy, completely unworthy. It makes you feel unlovable, unsalvageable. So it is the worst feeling you could possibly experience. It was an electrifying floor routine that turned UCLA gymnast star Caitlin Ohashi into a viral sensation. I couldn't stop watching. Your energy is contagious. But behind that smile is a legacy of pain. It was more like, you don't look like a gymnast. You look like you swallowed a pig. You You're... had coaches tell you that? 
is just disgusting. She was the victim of fat shaming. I couldn't accept myself. Caitlin scored better than Simone Biles. But while Biles went on to win four Olympic gold medals. Why isn't she going to the Olympics again? There was a time where I was on top of the world. I was unbeatable until I wasn't. Oh, that was horrible. Believe it or not, it's also, you know, a lifesaver in certain situations. And it also saves communities. So shame, the way I see it anyway, shame is incredibly central to our existence in groups. Like we shame one another for hoarding food in a time of famine or making too much noise when making noise will get us killed. Shame is that you can't do this. Even if you want to do this for the sake of communal health and our safety, you cannot do this. And it is shameful that you're doing it. It's sort of anti-social behavior that we're going to make you feel terrible about because otherwise we're going to kick you out of the group and you might just die of exposure. It's actually really important to be able to feel shame. But to your example and to mine, there are some things that are just simply inappropriate to shame. And that is, well, fatness is a great example. But in general, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is I wanted to explore that question, like when is it inappropriate? When is it appropriate? It is inappropriate to shame somebody about something they don't actually choose and cannot choose. You did not choose to have the baby weight. I did not choose to be born to a family with diabetes or fat family. Nobody chooses to be fat. And yet, the people who shame us somehow feel like they're doing us a favor often. Maybe not the comedian in your case, but there's plenty of examples of people who will argue that they are just simply concerned about your health when in fact they are fat shaming you. And that's inappropriate. You were talking about communal aspects of when shaming might be appropriate. And you start the book with an anecdote about some indigenous Americans who actually have a shame ceremony. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, this is called the Pueblo Clown Society. And I spoke to somebody who's an expert on the Hopi version of it. And the idea there is that there are creatures, and that this is sort of an annual summer festival, who descend um, from the heavens. And they are not quite human. They're humans, but they're dressed inappropriately. They do inappropriate things. They don't know the rules. They don't know what the social rules are. They do things like eat poop or have sex in public. And they get shamed. They're actually the entertainment between the more solemn acts of the summer festival. But over the life of the festival, they like learn the rules. And at some point, the tide turns and they're actually in charge of the rules. And an example I wrote about in the book was that once they are at that point, they know the rules and they enforce them. The clowns actually drag out this bootlegger to make an example of him. They're like, wait, we just learned this rule and what you're doing is against the rules. And so they publicly shame the bootlegger for selling alcohol within the um, village. But the critical point here, though, is that, first of all, they don't incarcerate him. Second of all, they don't kick him out of the village. Third of all, it really is against the rules. It's bad for the village to have alcohol available. And then he is kept an eye on. He's part of the village. He can come back next summer. And if he hasn't been bootlegging, he will not be shamed further. So what I try to describe there is a kind of like a positive feedback loop of shame, if you will. Like shaming people who are making the wrong choice and saying that's against our rules as a community, we need you to do better. Okay. So the obvious question for me right now is what if a person does not feel shame? What if you're shaming for the right reasons, whether it be the rules or community aspects, or you shouldn't be a horrible 
president. And no matter how you try to shame that person, it just has no impact on their behavior. That's a really good question. So first I'll say that shame doesn't always work, right? So let me back up. When you shame somebody, it's with respect to a norm, with respect to some rule, right? In that case, I just described it was the bootlegging rule. When you shame a president, it's with respect to some rule, presumably like we like democracy. We're a democratic country. How dare you, right? If the person you're trying to shame doesn't share the norm, it's not going to work. In fact, they might just be outraged that you are trying to make them feel bad because everybody knows how bad shame feels, like that you're attempting to make them feel that bad when they don't feel like they have to follow your silly rule. Think about masks or, or vaccines. That's a really potent example of that kind of thing where like, you can try shaming me for not wearing a mask, but I don't believe in masks. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to work because I literally don't share the norm. By the way, I do share the norm, but I'm just saying like, that's, that's not going to work. You do not have to wear those masks. I mean, please take them off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything. And we got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. Governor Ron DeSantis told students at the University of South Florida to lose the masks during a press conference today. Tonight, his name is trending on Twitter, some defending his actions, while others say he shouldn't shame kids for their choice. If anything, it's going to backfire because it's going to make them feel like you just slapped me across the face because that's shame. That's how it is received to your original question about is it related to pain? Yes, it is actually received as a physical blow. It's as painful as a physical. It might be even more painful because it lasts longer. You know, you said it was sticky. So imagine slapping somebody across the face metaphorically, and then they're like, I don't even agree with your rule. What are you doing? It doesn't work. So I would just like to separate the questions of whether something's an appropriate attempt of shaming and whether it actually works, because it can be appropriate and not work. But I will also add, if we're talking about Donald Trump by any chance, people called him shameless. I like to point out that he's not shameless. He's like possibly one of the most shame-based persons I, I know of, but he just doesn't have the same norms that we do. If we wanted to shame him, because you said, no, no matter what you try, you can't shame him. But how about if you called him weak or fat or stupid? Yeah, I feel like we tried all of that. I mean, I really think that there were people that were trying to go at all the angles that they could. It almost became like a an experiment within itself of how is this person just have no shame? I feel like we didn't do a very good job. We shamed him on stuff he simply doesn't care about, like spelling. And then for things he really does care about, maybe he just wouldn't hear it from us. But he does care about his perceived power and wisdom and strength and richness. Like how much time he's wasted trying to pretend he's richer than he is because he's ashamed. He's ashamed and he is ashamed. I think that everything you're talking about, and especially when we were talking before about how shame can benefit us as a society, but that's not really how we see shame in most of the world today. So tell us, let's talk a little bit more about some of the unhealthy ways we shame people and where that, where that motivation comes from. Yeah. So the first two thirds of my book is dedicated to unhealthy what I call punching down shame. So that's shaming people who have less power, who don't have a choice often about what you're shaming them on. And they often voice either. They have no way of explaining themselves. There's no due process. And the short answer of why it happens so much is because number one, it works. As I said, people will spend a lot of money in order to stop feeling shame. So it's profitable. So 
I talk about the wellness industry. I talk about the diet industry. I talk about pharmaceuticals, like the Sackler family selling the opioid epidemic that was hugely profitable and they were lying about its addictiveness. And when they, and when that was discovered, they literally wrote to each other on email, like blame the addicts, blame the addicts. That was like, we can just shame the victims of our crime instead of having to accept any responsibility. I mean, that was, that is simply how it works. Shame in that sense is a very successful diversion technique. Just like for the teachers were asking, what are my rights here? And the answer was, you have no rights, be ashamed. And it worked. Diversionary tactic, the shame is a perfect diversionary tactic. So you have, I have another chapter about the way we shame poor people, starting with Reagan's welfare queens. The whole point of that was those are those people, they make that bad choice and they're also corrupt and we don't have to worry about them. So guess what? We're good. They're bad. And, and it just, it alleviates any responsibility or duty we have to a very bad problem. For that matter, same goes for um, addiction. We have, like, and I'll start with Nancy Reagan, just say no. Again, I actually think that's a wonderful example because it actually illustrates the extent to which addiction was framed as a choice. Whereas we know people who are addicted to things, and we know it's not a choice. And so we use shame to separate them from us. And then we even go so far as to like build rehab clinics that are based on shame rather than the, the most recent actual life-saving techniques, which is like medically assisted um, treatment, i.e. like methadone and stuff like that, which people don't want to give out methadone because they were like, oh, you should be ashamed. You shouldn't need this crutch. So everything is shame-based and it's not for them. It's for us. It's for us to maintain the status quo. It's for the companies to assume the power and to profit. And then finally, I will say that the old version of the shame industrial complex, the shame industries, all these industries making money off of shame quite directly. One of my favorite examples in that part is like Vagistil trying to make women feel ashamed of their vaginas. Mom, you have that problem too? We all get that not so fresh feeling sometimes. So what do we do? I use Massengill. Now two fresh ideas from Massengill, new baking soda and water and new unscented. Massengill. Trusted by more women. And teenage girls feel ashamed of vaginas and smells coming from the vagina and periods and growing old, like all this fake science around like growing old and being forgetful. And so you should take Prevagen, which doesn't work. But it's just, if you want to make money, make someone feel ashamed and then tell them, here's something you can pay me for to make yourself feel less ashamed. So that's an old school approach to shaming the shaming complex. But the new one is, in my opinion, like all the social media companies. And the twist that they have now is that instead of directly shaming us, like you should be ashamed, give me money, like the diet industry does, it's more like we're going to set up this platform where we just promote shame. The longer you stay up there shaming each other, the more money we make. So instead of them shaming us directly, they get us to shame each other. At the end of the day, they make just obscene amounts of money from shame. I want to talk about, obviously, that's a truly vile perversion of shame that we see in the world today. And I would like to talk to you about algorithms. You're an expert in mathematics and have written extensively about them. What are they? How do they work? Great question. They're quite simple. They're just pattern matching. They say things that happened in the past probably will happen similarly in the future. They're very good at pattern matching. But the question is, to what pattern do they match? And what is their sort of definition of success? Because what they're really doing is saying, 
things that like this were successful in the past, so we'll predict that this will be successful. But what does success look like? In the case of Facebook, success is keeping us on Facebook. It's as simple as that. Like I talked to people that used to work at Facebook and anything that a data scientist would suggest for Facebook would have to have passed one single test, which is, does it keep people on Facebook longer? That was like the one rule. If it shortened people's experience on Facebook, we're not going to run this. And if it lengthened it, we will. And guess what happened? It turns out that we stay on Facebook the longest if we get really riled up, if we get into arguments, if we fight with each other. So it ends up promoting just by that one choice, keep us on Facebook. To be fair to them, at the beginning, they probably didn't know this would happen. But it quite soon became clear that toxicity and fights is what gets promoted when you optimize to engagement, which is what they call keeping us on Facebook. They knew that for a long time. They didn't stop it because it was so profitable. It feels like one of those in hindsight moments that so much could have been different. I would love for you to just speak to how algorithms drive shame, not just conflict. How do these algorithms drive the shame in our culture? Right. So I'm going to go back to what I said originally, which is that shame is with respect to some norm. When we we shame somebody, it's with respect to some rule. And what is amazing, and again, probably not planned this way, not probably not designed this way, but this is what happened about social media is that we get together with our friends, right? It feels like a lot of people, actually. It feels like the society, and maybe it feels like the Pueblo village that we talked about, but it's actually a very small, tiny part of the world. And the algorithms filter in things that our little group that we agree with each other largely, I assume, or else we unfriend them or something. It filters in, the algorithm filters in what we consider really disgusting ideas from outside groups, which we feel like we've already gone through this sort of like agreement that this is unreasonable and it's like it's against the rule or the algorithm in any in any social media platform actually will just dribble in the thing that's just most likely to provoke us because that's of course most likely to keep us on Facebook. And we'll toss it around like a hot potato among ourselves. Oh my God, can you believe this person did this? And it causes this kind of provoked outrage and shame, which I would call it performative shame. We perform shame for our group. And it's a way of getting righteousness points, if you will. And I talked to this psychologist named Molly Crockett. And what she described to me didn't surprise me at all because I've been thinking about it, is that this actually, this moment when we protest somebody's outrageous and shameful behavior gives us a dopamine boost in our brain. It's almost like being on a drug, especially when we retweeted or liked or we got boosted by our inside friends. And if we were just a little bit in disagreement with the next group over, if you will, I think of ourselves as a little island. And if we were like pretty close to that other island before, but they did something that was slightly, to our minds, slightly off, like slightly against the rule, that after this sort of like performative shaming on on our little island, we're even further away. So we've moved our island away from that island. And again, the algorithm filters in those things that move our islands away from each other. And in the meantime, we get get addicted, if you will, to that little adrenaline boost of outrage. And we lob the shame over to the next island with our like shame grenade launcher. And so my vision of social media is just a sort of tiny little island's lobbing little shame grenades at each other and enjoying in a kind of perverted way the feeling that we're smarter and better and more righteous than the next island over. Yeah, my book, I also talk about this. I talk about how I feel like 
a lot of activism on social media is performative. And this call-out culture is performative. It makes people feel righteous and it lights up those parts in the brain that feel good. And so they think that they have to continue to do it, publicly shame people. Remember summer 2020 when our social media was filled with those little black boxes? I can't forget them. I remember waking up on that hashtag Blackout Tuesday, checking my phone and seeing literally hundreds of my followers posting this little black square, which I found out was a minutia portion of the over 28 million Instagram users that posted this little black square. Now, these were people that I had not heard nor seen say a word about the likes of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Nina Pop, Tony McDade, nor Ahmaud Aubrey, rest in power. Now, this was irritating, as I could tell that these were people that had no intent on creating justice or true change, but they only wanted to appease their conscience. In the replies to every one of my social media posts, I am body shamed. My producer, Ben, was fat shamed by right-wing celebrities after appearing in the news with me, which in turn gave the green light for their followers to jump in and be total assholes. I guess what I want to know is what is it that makes people feel free to treat other people that way? What is driving humans to just be this terrible to each other and not feel shame themselves? I, I think that's the critical question. And I also want to say that I definitely want to level my accusations at the companies not the humans that are manipulated by the companies. And that's not an excuse for terrible trolling that you've been targeted by. I pity the people that get caught up in that manipulation loop and feel like they're accomplishing something by jumping on a shame train, especially like a punching down fat shaming train. It's just, it's embarrassing. And I think they will be embarrassed by it in their future. The question I want to ask rather than just hating on them is number one, like, don't we do that a little bit too? And not in a, such an obvious way. And I know that I do. I can answer that right now that like I have found myself performatively shaming on social media myself and without asking the question, like, am I targeting too low here? That's the question I want to ask, you know, is like, let's blame the companies that profit from this and have designed it this way. I'm not saying once they change their design, it'll all go back to where it was before because I don't really think that. I think that this is, to your point, a real shift in acceptable behavior and not in a good way. So I don't know how long it'll take to move past this phase where we, even just thinking that everyone needs to know everything about what I think. Right. You know, we've discussed how corporations profit off shame, but what does it mean for our culture that shame is such a valuable commodity? Well, it's in some sense, the only like currency of social media. So not sure how valuable it is, but it is certainly very visceral. Like it is, it's extremely urgent. It feels really urgent. Like the newest Karen, we all need to see that video. We all need to like shame that person. And because it is irresistible to us, because we're all kind of addicted to it. That doesn't mean it's 
valuable. I mean, I wouldn't really say that the opioids are valuable, even though an addict would consider them highly valuable at the moment that they really are jonesing for it. But yeah, I, I guess to my point earlier, if you don't mind, just because I thought of the Karen video, that's a great example of how like people on the left do engage in that stuff. And yet it's really not helpful. It doesn't save, it doesn't underline what reasonable behavior is because it is so far out of reasonable behavior. All it serves to do is to perform righteousness in front of our followers and our friends without actually addressing the systemic problem of racist policing. So again, it's like aiming too low, aiming too low. Let's not shame the person we will never hear from again on Twitter. She knows that she did it wrong. Trust me, she knows. Let's ask ourselves the question, why can women, white women depend on police to arrest Black people for innocent behavior? That's a really good question, but it's never addressed by jumping on a shame train. Are there stages of shame? There are, yeah. This is just a framing that I find useful because it, it explains to me, and I am a nerd, so I, I do things with models in data science. This is a model for shame that explains a lot of things I observe to me. So I'll say what it is. And it is that when you first experience shame, it's just incredibly painful. And then the second thing you do, as, as soon as you possibly can, is you deny it. <laughs> like you are basically thrown into this cognitive distance, right? It's why it's so painful. Because you're like, wait a second, I'm a good person. Wait a second, I'm a good person. And so many people, pretty much everyone thinks that they're essentially a good person. They don't want to feel unworthy and unlovable and unsalvageable. So they go into this denial state, which, or hibernation, if you will. And I, I remember living in hibernation about my fat shame for years as a child. Simply couldn't handle it. I, sim- I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to um, push back against it. So I just lived with it in a kind of don't talk to me about that kind of thing. I'm not looking in the mirror and you don't look at me. And then like, and then you could get thrown back into the first stage, which is just pain at any moment because you're not, you haven't dealt with it. The third stage is when you do deal with that, I call it the reckoning. Like it's when you personally understand, oh, either, yes, I did something wrong. I should apologize and you actually apologize. Or you're like, oh, wait, that wasn't, that's not reasonable to be shamed for my body because my body works great. I'm working out to have my ideal body type. And you know what type that is? None of your f-ing business. Lizzo straight up drops the mic on all the body shamers. Namaste. Have a great day. Here's what went down. On Tuesday, the Grammy winner kept it real, like really real, on TikTok, posting a new video about her fitness routine and her self-love. Hey, so I've been working out consistently for the last five years, and it may come as a surprise to some of y'all that I'm not working out to have your ideal body type. Diets don't work and whatever, like it's a personal reckoning. And then the fourth stage, which is you know, if you get to it, is the stage of saying, wait, I'm just one of many people. And this is a, you know, this is a society-wide issue that poor people are shamed or that people with addictions are shamed or that fat people are shamed. And like, I want to speak on behalf of those unfairly shamed people. So that's like a socialized reckoning. We are speaking on March 1st as Russia is invading Ukraine. The entire world and the most powerful countries in the world seem to be trying to shame Vladimir Putin into ending this horrendous attack. Congress and most thinking people in our nation tried to shame Donald Trump again. We mentioned this a little bit before into behaving rationally. 
I want to know what happens to those people in the world which seem to be immune to shame. How can we as a species alter the behaviors of people who don't respond at all to shame? I do want to agree with you that sociopaths really don't have shame. And I, I think Putin might be a sociopath. And the answer is they won't respond to a sort of what ends up being a social request to behave well. No, they're not going to respond to that. So that's why you, you don't get at Putin by asking him to think through things. You get at Putin by saying, here's your punishment. Here are the people we're putting pressure on to stop doing business with you. Shell, you know, BP, all the oil companies that you don't think of them as like good guys. But the real question is, why are they stopping business with Russia? And it's because shame is working there. They didn't get ordered to do that by a government. They decided to do it because they did not think that they could maintain their sort of social status in the world, their reputational status in the world, if they didn't do that. So that is actually a direct cause of shame and a direct result of shame. And by the way, I, thank you for bringing this up because. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I was in Occupy and I consider myself an activist. I'm just like, wait, shame is sometimes the only tool that activists have. It's certainly the most important tool in civil rights movements. So shame has to be sometimes appropriate and hopefully sometimes it works. And so this question of like, when does it work? When is it appropriate is really what I wanted to get at. But I would say that the last few days have really shown that international shame and pressure has really worked. Of course, Putin won't feel bad. That's not the point. I think he miscalculated. You know, we talk a lot about shame being a part of nonviolent protest as activists. And I think it's one of the most important tools that we have. But my concern is how do we move past the shame industrial complex? I think the shame industrial complex, first of all, there has to be profit made. There's never profit in activism. Can we just agree on that? <laughs> like people don't do that for money, right? For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm still acting because I have to fund my activism. Exactly. You don't make money from activism. You also aren't punching down. You're punching up. It's the opposite in every way from the shame industrial complex. The shame industrial complex punches down in order to divert, to maintain power, to maintain the status quo, or to profit. Punching up shame, which is what civil rights movements use, is you're punching up at somebody in power for making the wrong choice. You're holding them accountable and you're like, I'm going to be here and I watch you until you choose the right thing to do. It's a much pushier version of the Pueblo Clown Society, right? Because it's like, hey, you, we're watching you. You can do better. You must do better. And by the way, you have claimed to share these values with us. So you're appealing to a norm, right? These are the values. So for Parkland, they are high school kids. Their friends had gotten killed. They were fantastic punching up shamers. There was clearly nothing that they weren't making money off it, even though they were being accused of being professional activists, which was ridiculous. They were, they were appealing for like the lives of children, which everyone claims to sh share that norm. So it was a, a very good version, a clean version of what punching up shame looks like. You have a choice. You have a voice because you're in power. And we want to see you do the right thing. And shame on you for not doing the right thing. That's what punching up looks like. What gives you hope? I wouldn't say I have hope yet. <laughs> really? So thank you. Thank you for assuming that. You might be the first person in our three years of doing this show or four years who has ever said that they might not have hope. Well, I try to be a realist. I do think that the reason I wrote this book about shame is because I really think that people 
are confused about shame. It's a weapon. And it's a very powerful weapon that has been given to sort of everyone. It's like everyone has a Molotov cocktail and they can throw it in their neighbor's yard if, or their neighbor's window if they really want to. My hope would be that they would take a look at the situation and say, oh, that's not going to solve their problem. That's not going to solve my problem. Let's aim higher. Let's literally punch up rather than punching down. And so I gave these, I gave this taxonomy of shame. I gave this sort of lens of shame in order for people to recognize when they're doing it wrong and when they're building institutions that do it wrong or when they're helping corporations profiting from it. And I will have hope if people are like, oh, wait, I was going to shame my chubby daughter, but I decided not to because I read your book. Then I'll start having hope. Kathy O'Neill, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. To paraphrase Dr. Brene Brown's seminal research on shame, shame is the intensely personal and painful experience and a belief that you're inherently flawed and that if other people knew about it, you'd be rejected in some way. Shame is a universal emotion, but what you might not appreciate is it has a complex relationship with your health. As a clinical health psychologist, I work with individuals striving to improve their health, many of which with chronic medical conditions like hepatitis C, HIV, or obesity. In this work, I see how shame impacts people's lives on a daily basis. It impacts the way we view ourselves, our relationships, and our health behaviors. There is a place for shame in the world. It keeps people who would harm us as a culture from operating freely. When deployed correctly, it steers the lost back to the herd. But it's so rarely used this way. And if you don't believe me, look at the replies to literally any one of my social media posts. Horrible person after horrible person tries to use my age or my gender, my career, my personal life, and so much more as a weapon to try and humiliate me into silence. It won't work. It won't ever work with me. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't see it, and that sometimes. It really, really sucks. If you're one of those people, if you try and silence people by shaming them about their body or their wealth or their sexuality or their race or literally anything about them which has no bearing on our culture, you are the problem. It's not political. If you've shamed me for my body or if you shamed Melania Trump for hers, you're just an asshole. But no matter how you vote, you should be outraged that social media companies are profiting off of driving people to do more of this. I honestly don't know if our society can survive bad people who want to get rich off an algorithm. So next time before typing that mean tweet, ask yourself if you want to make Mark Zuckerberg richer. Because that's all the shame you're trying to deliver will accomplish. And if you do... Shame on you. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>